0: Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey, it's Craig Baird. The episode you're about to hear is a sample of the brand new podcast, Dead Man's Curse, Slumox Gold. This historical true crime podcast is hosted by Crew Williams from History Television's hit original series Dead Man's Curse, The Legend of the Lost Gold, which investigates the curse and legend that surrounds the lost gold mine of Pitt Lake. On their quest, they're joined by members of the local First Nations, historians, and cultural experts of diverse backgrounds as they sort fact from fiction and give Slumac a voice from the other side of the veil. In this episode, you'll hear about how an indigenous prospector, accused of murder, set a curse on anyone who searched for his hidden gold just before he was hanged. Over a century later, a prospector, a mountaineer, a truth seeker, and a way-shower band together to walk the same paths of those who went looking for Slumac's cursed gold and never returned. Find out how a single bullet was the catalyst for a 150-year-old mystery.
1: The podcast you're about to hear tells the story of a Caetsea man named Slumuk. Members of the Caetsea First Nation have been instrumental in us telling this story properly. We acknowledge that the story of Slumuk originates from the ancestral lands of the Caetsea people. What you're about to hear, you may find graphic and violent in nature. Listener discretion is advised. This is over a hundred year old mystery. People have died, people disappear. People don't come back, come back, come back, back. back. come back. On a cold January evening in 1891, a condemned man was led slowly back to his cell for the very last time, the night before his execution. As he slept, two men, a priest and a catechist, prayed over him. The doomed man woke up, ate a good meal, savoring every bite and minutes before 7 a.m., he was baptized in the hopes of eternal salvation. Just before 8 a.m., the hangman arrived at the door of the man's cell. He submitted without complaint and filed into the procession that headed toward the gallows. He walked firmly up the steps leading to the platform and faced the crowd below. The hangman quickly adjusted the noose as the priest commenced a final prayer. Then a black cap was put on, and at eight o'clock exactly, the bolt was drawn. The trap fell, and the man's neck broke as his body dropped eight feet, ensuring his death was painless. The man's name was Slumuk, and he had just paid the ultimate penalty for his crime. Not long after his death, rumors began to surface that he had discovered a lucrative and hidden stash of gold in the mountains, a source worth billions. And that's bigger than big time. It's legendary. It's said that just before Slumak was hanged, he muttered these words as a warning to anyone who dared to search for his secret gold mine. "Nika memlus, my memlus. Loosely translated from the Chinook language, the words mean, when I die, the mind dies. I'm Crew Williams, and this is Dead Man's Curse. Episode one, the crime. The story of Slumax gold begins in the late 1800s when he was found guilty of murder and hanged in New Westminster, British Columbia, about 30 minutes from what now is downtown Vancouver. His story and mine would become intertwined in a way I could never have planned or predicted. So let me explain. I'm part of the team of an adventure television docuseries called Dead Man's Curse. The legend describes that there's a creek covered with gold. There's nuggets everywhere. That Slumach was a murder killing to protect the gold that he had found. A death sentence to anyone that tries to find his gold. In the series, a mountaineer, a truth seeker, a way shower, and myself, a prospector, are on a search for Slumuk's mind as we walk the same trails and sleep under the same stars that he slept under over 150 years ago. Over the next 12 episodes of this podcast, we're going to go a little bit deeper into Slumuk's story to find out was he actually the homicidal madman the newspapers made him out to be? Did he kill to protect the treasure, or was it something else? We'll investigate Slumuk's life, his curse, and if we're lucky, maybe find a little bit of that infamous gold. I'll be your guide along with a team from Dead Man's Curse. We'll also be joined by a host of experts and members from the Keiitzi and Stolo First Nations to sort fact from fiction and give Slumuk a voice from the other side of the veil. If you've seen the TV show, you'll know that last spring, I was on the side of a glacier on the Mamquamp mountain, upriver from the pit lake and miles away from home, just chilling in my tent. This was the first time I've ever been climbing on a glacier, and my first big expedition with my buddy, Adam Palmer, the expert mountaineer. That night, there was nothing outside but rugged, unforgiving terrain. I remember being overwhelmed by it all. When we first arrived in the helicopter earlier in the day, I could feel an essence. I mean, you could feel it in the water. It was something special. There's something really unique about the Pit Lake region. It's Jurassic, like the land that time forgot. Everything's extra large out there, from the trees to the wolverines, the bears and the cougars. So it makes sense. If everything's extra large, there should be extra-large gold, too. We were in search of Slumex gold, but came up empty-handed. I was just ready to get out of there. But it was getting late, so we just set up camp instead. So I'm gonna tell you straight up, from the very beginning, I have not feared that curse. Plain and simple. I know there's a lot of gold, and I know I can get it. That's what I'm doing. I'm a God-fearing man. I fear God, not curses. I had one of the most vivid dreams of my entire life. The kind where I felt I, reach I could reach out, out and touch reach out, it. That night, I felt cold, sandy, wind-blown finger pressing on my lips. I don't even know about sharing the details with you to be honest. I felt like I wasn't supposed to tell anyone at all. It felt like a warning from centuries ago from a man protecting his treasure, ensuring it remains as lost as he had intended. Maybe I got too close because in that moment, the curse became real, very real, like I could be next. slumac's story has been with me since I was about 13 years old, when I first heard it while working on a sawmill in my uncle's backyard. I don't even remember how it came up, but he said, there's a mine out there with your name on it. And I couldn't believe it. Turned out he was telling the truth, sort of. There was the legend of the Lost Pit mine. The more I found out about it, the more it enticed me. The more I wanted to find that gold for myself. I started doing research, reading books, going to libraries and watch prospecting and treasure hunting shows hosted by Bill Barley and Bill Burrud. Hi, I'm Bill Bird. The program is Treasure, and our story is an exciting one about John Schlumach, who's supposed to, to have had a gold mine hidden
2: away in the wild pit lake mountain country just 60 miles from Vancouver, British
1: Columbia, shrouded in legend, cursed for over 68 years by the ghost of its owner. Anyone who looks for the Lost Creek mine is walking right into a death trap. For me, the curse isn't what scared me. It was the terrain, the wild animals, the stories of crazy prospectors that went out looking for it and never came back. It was a childhood mystery, a real life legend, and a story that I could be a part of. And there was something else. There was the man, Slumuk, who pushed past the barriers of civilization into the wilderness, mining and trading gold and surviving for years, living on the outskirts of the land, living with nature, and I saw myself. So I never quit looking for the gold or the truth behind Slumuck's legend. On this journey into Slumuck's story, his trial and execution, our team poured over scores of newspapers, court records, and different sources from the 1890s that detailed how the story was officially reported back then. As you can imagine, some of the words used to describe the Indigenous people are archaic and can be offensive to some listeners. We're using them because this is how the events were reported in the press at that time. And something to keep in mind throughout our journey. And remember, the official record isn't the only record. Based on our findings, the story goes something like this. In 1858, around 30,000 gold seekers flooded the banks of the Fraser River in British Columbia's first significant gold rush. Prior to 1858, the population of the non-sovereign British territory, known as New Caledonia, was between 40 and 50,000 people, mostly indigenous peoples. To avoid the lawless conditions of the California and Australian gold fields just a few years earlier, and not wanting to lose territory to the Americans, the British government was quick to establish New Caledonia as the colony of British Columbia on August 2nd, 1858. This is around the time when a brash and fiery young indigenous prospector named Sluma came from somewhere in the mountains north of the pit lake down to the bustling port city of New Westminster. The town was a gold rush staging area on the Fraser River And when Slumek would arrive, he'd bring gold nuggets the size of walnuts and spent small fortunes on booze, gambling, and women. No one knew exactly where he came from and no one knew exactly where he went when he disappeared for weeks at a time. The mountains north of Pitt Lake, part of the Pacific ranges of British Columbia, were steep and foreboding, covered by towering redwood cedars, hemlocks, and Douglas firs threaded by fast-running mountain streams and traditional indigenous trading trails, overgrown with brush in the wake of European colonization. In winter, snow can make the forest life-threatening and virtually impenetrable. It was rumored that sometimes he would take one of the ladies with him, only for her to disappear and never to be seen again. But Slumuck always returned to the saloons and brothels of New Westminster, squandering the gold he brought with him from the pit lake, never once revealing the source of the gold to anyone. Slumuck's free spending days all came to a halt on September 8th, 1890. The Daily Colonist reported that, quote, a deliberate murder was committed at Pit River yesterday by an old Indian named Slumuck, who while fishing with other Indians picked up a gun and shot Louis B., a half-breed, through the breast, killing him instantly. End quote. Half-breed was a common and now derogatory term used to describe someone of mixed Indigenous and European ancestry. News of Louis B.'s killing immediately made its way to the city. The newspaper reported that one of the Indians who witnessed the awful deed immediately fled and informed the local Indian agent. A quick note, an Indian agent was a representative of the government, usually a white man, charged with implementing policy and managing the affairs of the First Nations people. In the newspaper report of the murder, the witness told the Indian agent that, quote, he had not the slightest doubt that Slumak would murder the first man he met because he had the countenance and resemblance of that of an incarnate demon, end quote. It is said that after killing, Slumak reloaded the gun and went into the woods with plenty of ammunition. The other Indians present were too frightened to detain him, the paper reported. The day after the murder, they said that Slumac had been attempting to dump Louis B's body far away from the shore into the deep, dark waters of the pit lake. On September 10th, the Daily Columbian reported that Slumak placed the body in a canoe with the intention to drop it overboard in deep water and Captain Pittendrew, the local justice of the peace who was sent to the scene of the crime to investigate, ordered the river to be dragged in search for the body, recovered it, and had it in custody. The newspaper also reported that an eyewitness who first reported the crime was taken to the city lockup this morning for safekeeping and that a jury was summoned to proceed with the coroner's inquest into the murder. An autopsy was performed and it was determined that a single bullet to the heart and lungs was the cause of Louis B's death. A single bullet was the catalyst for a 150-year-old mystery. Before we go any further into the story, I need to address the term jury as it was used in the news reports from the 1800s. The justice system back then did not look like what it does today. Remember, At the time the story took place, Canada was still a British colony, and although common law ruled, the right to be tried by judge and jury in Canada for indictable offenses under the Criminal Code did not get codified until 1892, a year after Louis B.'s murder. So the historical role of the jury was very different from what it is today. Originally, Jurors were chosen from the local community and were themselves the source of information, sworn under oath to disclose what they knew of the facts. Jurors were almost exclusively white and male, often land-owning and middle-class or wealthy. With that in mind, three days after the murder, on September 11th, 1891, the Daily Columbian reported that, quote, a coroner's inquest was held yesterday in the committee rooms of the city hall and that the death, in the doctor's opinion, must have been instantaneous. Seymour, an Indian, was the principal witness examined by the jury. He briefly related that it had been entirely unpremeditated, end quote. The newspaper also reported that Seymour left shortly after witnessing the crime to inform authorities and that the jury, quote, returned a verdict of willful murder against the Indian Slumak, end quote. Here, we can only assume that the term verdict as used in this report is what today we would call a charge or indictment because Slumak was still at large and there was no records to show a guilty charge at this point in the story. It is then said in the newspaper reports that Louis B's body was then turned over to indigenous community members for burial the jury's charge of willful murder triggered what came next, an unceasing manhunt for Slumach. In an act of solidarity against the accused murderer, one of New Westminster's wealthiest families donated a steamship to authorities for the initial investigation into Louis B.'s death. And leading the search for Slumach was Warden William Moresby. Like most settlers to B.C. at the time, he was born in England and was 14 years old when he immigrated to British North America in 1861. Moresby became a constable, and at 30 years of age, was appointed governor of the jail of New Westminster. He had been at the post for 13 years when he set out to find and capture the murderous Slumach. Moresby and two special officers traveled up the Fraser River to the scene of the crime by the donated steamship. They were on their way to meet the Chief of Indians, again, an archaic term used at the time, with a selected posse of men. And they vowed to search for Slumak until he was captured. A newspaper wrote, quote, Slumak will make a fight before he's captured. But Moresby is not the sort of man to let possible risk interfere and will bring him in, dead or alive. End quote. The following day, Slumak was still at large in the expansive and mountainous wilderness near Pitt Lake. Frustrated, Moresby went to the cabin where Slumak lived, just outside an indigenous village near the lake. In his search, he only found gunpowder and some provisions. So he burned Slumak's meager shack to the ground and ordered his men to destroy Slumak's canoe, his sole source of transportation. To help me tell the next part of the story, I want to introduce you to Taylor Starr. She's the true seeker on our amazing Dead Man's Curse team. And if you've seen the TV show, you know she's investigated newspaper reports and has spent countless hours researching Slumuck's story. But she's so much more. Taylor is the great, great grandniece of Slumuck.
2: Growing up in Seabird Island First Nation, I knew little about my great-uncle. When I was growing up, I never really heard anything about Slumuck. He was essentially banished from history, just Poof, gone. Historically, gold never meant anything to First Nations people, apart from everyone trampling on our land to go and find it. For me, the gold is actually completing this family tree. We find the gold, we finish Slumac's story. As part of the team for this project, I went to local libraries, scoured the papers, and also turned to local historians to try to get to the truth. And you've heard some of my research already. It's important to note that the colonist newspaper reported quote, "Slumac will now have to keep to the woods until cold weather and starvation drives him in." The Indians are all afraid of the murder and decline to assist in beating the bush for him, as he is armed and has lots of ammunition." End quote. The newspaper went on to say that, quote, "Slumac is a desperate character and is credited by the Indians for another murder committed years ago and under similar circumstances. Although a few of the murderer's friends say he is insane, dozens of Indians say otherwise and declare he is only a bloodthirsty old villain." Back then, First Nations people were portrayed as savages. Indigenous people have been stereotyped throughout history. Sumac has been depicted as a sort of cartoon character. This is something that we'll investigate in this series and in future episodes because there's been so many stories that have been told about Slumac. So my mission right now is to actually put his story together and to put my family's story together from this.
1: Based on all this research, it's said that the manhunt continued as William Moresby mustered all available resources and men and searched for Slumac daily. A few days after the killing on September 13th, one of Moresby's special constables saw Slumuk using grass fire signals to communicate with his relatives. And in particular, communicating the location of the search party. Then, in a close encounter with a fugitive on a beach alongside the lake, a constable claimed to have caught Slumuk aiming his rifle directly at him but he was able to throw Slumuk off his aim with his own muzzle before an indigenous colleague fired a second shot. Slumuk was said to have dropped to his hands and knees, quickly crawling into the bushes. Moresby arrived at the head of the lake where Slumuk's friends and relatives had gathered, and they, it was said, behaved in a threatening manner towards him. They appeared to close ranks around the fugitive from justice, still hiding in the wilderness. Never one to put up with what he considered interference of his duties, Moresby ordered the entire population of Slumuck's village to pack their belongings and move immediately to the Coquitlam Indigenous Reserve, about 20 kilometers away by steamship. Slumuck's community angrily resisted the forced relocation and his brother even attempted to fight Moresby, who beat him handily. After being removed from their village, The community was told if they left the Coquitlam Reserve for any reason whatsoever, they would immediately be arrested. Moresby became convinced that Slumac would never allow himself to be taken alive.
2: Based on all my research, the murder of Louis B. was big news in New Westminster. The press coverage was relentless as the search for Slumac intensified. On September 16, 1890, The Daily Columbia reported that a manhunt struck fear in the population of the lower mainland of British Columbia saying, quote: "The news of Louis B's murder has awakened in the memories of the Indians. Crimes which Slumac has committed in years gone by. Indians who know him well say he has committed four or five murders during the last 25 years, end quote." People are alleging that Slumac had killed someone six years earlier. And disappeared from the community for a year before returning to his shack as if nothing had ever happened. Slumac's apparent meanness and experience of living in the bush helped him survive the wilderness as the days shortened and nighttime temperatures fell. It was reported that Slumac was a hunter without equal, without fear, and one that, quote, possessed of a nature vicious in the extreme, end quote. The Columbia newspaper said, quote, it is quite evident that if only half of what is told of Slumac is true, he is fit for the gallows and should not be allowed to remain unhanged. It would be a great relief to the people of Pitt Meadows and Maple Ridge when that old villain is secured within the prison walls." End quote.
1: Finally, on October 25th, 1890, more than six weeks after Louis B. had been killed, Slumuck starving and weather-beaten, surrendered to authorities on the eastern shore of Pitt Lake. As reported, the local Indian agent met with members of SLUMUK's community at Pitt Lake a month earlier, before their eviction from the land, and convinced them that it was their duty and in their best interest to deliver SLUMUK to the authorities. The authorities believed that no community assistance had been offered to SLUMUK since that meeting, and this was likely the reason for his surrender. Slumak instructed his nephew to fetch the Indian agent who went to the lake accompanied by two Indian policemen. When they arrived, they saw that Slumak had eaten nothing for several days and was in a terrible state of emaciation. His ammunition was all gone and his clothes and rags looking very wild and weather-worn. That's when Slumak, the so-called insane bloodthirsty old villain was taken to New Westminster, barely clinging to life. He was placed under the care of the jailhouse physicians. Would Slumak survive? And with all this outrageous press coverage, what were his hopes for a fair trial?
2: Indian killer wants terror of pit lake.
1: Yeah. Why do they have to say Indian killer? Could have Guess just people, said killer, right?
2: Yeah, gets people to read the article like, ooh, what is this about?
1: So it, it looks like the media is, they're painting Slumac like the, this terrible villain. Yeah. That's next time on Dead Man's Curse. Thank you for joining me, and special thanks to Taylor Starr for her work on this episode. Dead Man's Curse Slumox Gold is written by Ernest White II and Dila Velasquez. Our producers are Jessica Young and Dila Velasquez. Editing and sound design by Rob Johnston and Roslyn Kofor. Our associate producers are Valerie Hold-Mershon and Gail Starr. Our indigenous cultural Heritage consultant is Gail Starr. Our executive producers are Chris Duncombe, Ernest White II, Michael Francis, Tim Hardy, and David Way. Dead Man's Curse is a curious cast and great Pacific Media production.